Well, good morning. Hope you guys are doing great. My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Salem. I want to continue to add my welcome to Ken's and to Brady's. We're so glad you guys are here. Thanks to you guys who are joining uh, online as well. Uh, it's good to see you. And um, hey, this morning we are jumping into a new series. Uh, we like to alternate between uh, kind of you know New Testament to Old Testament. So this fall we were in the book of Acts. Uh, and uh, now leading up to Easter, we're going to be in the book of Ruth. Uh, with a new series comes a new, uh, what we call a companion journal. This is our gift to you, uh, free of charge for each, you know, if you want to share it as a couple, some couples don't like to share, you know, um, you can get it for yourself. That's great. It's really designed uh, for you uh, to engage in, in the text of whatever we're going to be in and on a Sunday morning. It's designed for you to get into that before Sunday. Then to come, kind of learn some more, you know, and then it's designed for you to take to your life group or to your family and wrestle through questions. So in essence, this is designed to help your cave, your table, and your road uh, rhythms flourish. And so uh, if you do not have one of these uh, or you didn't get one on your way in, you can raise your hand and, and one of our ushers would love to uh, bring that to you. Um, I encourage you to, to, I haven't done this yet, so a little hypocrisy, but to throw your name you know, on the top or somewhere, so that way if you lose it, we can get it back to you. Uh, but I encourage you to take it home, use it, bring it with you. Um, the more you put into this, you know, the more uh, that you will uh, get out of it. So uh, we're starting in this series in Ruth, and I want to share this story. Um, many, many years ago, my wife and I were invited uh, to um, a play um, and, um, and it was, you know, she it was this gal named Bethany and Bethany was kind of like our daughter to a degree. And so she kept inviting us. And so we thought, man, we really should go. And so, um, we went and uh, for me, you know, it's always a little bit different cause like I could go to sports events all week long and, and enjoy that. Um, but I, you know, I thought this is gonna be really good. It's gonna be great to see God, you know, the way that God has designed her and the way he's going to use her, you know, kind of on set. She was really just bold for Jesus. So I thought, man, this is going to be great. So we went and we go to this play and the, and the whole thing is packed, right? There's just people everywhere and, and the chatter, the anticipation for this play is, you know, kind of, you know, kind of off the charts and they're really well known or known for really great plays. And, and so we're there and everybody's excited. The anticipation is building and, and uh, there's all this chatter, right? And then all of a sudden the lights begin to go down, right? And so it's like, as the lights go down, the chatter kind of follows, you know, and so it's like the room is building this anticipation, and then, and then all of a sudden, right, you know, like it gets there, the lights are completely down, and the place is just pitch black, and then the chatter kind of rises or just lowers to a minimal, and eventually it ceases into nothing, and it's this, this pure blackness, pure quiet, and anticipation for this play. My wife leans over to me, and she goes, I forgot to tell you, there's no speaking in this play. And I went, what? <laughs> like echoed into the room, you know? Like if it wasn't dark, I'm sure like 200 heads would have been like, that guy, you know? And so I say that because here's the deal, like Ruth, two things. One, Ruth is written like a play. And so what we're going to find today as we dive into these first five verses is that it's like he's setting up right, the entire rest of the story. So we're going to look at kind of act one, scene one. And that's what we're going to see, right? But the second reason I tell you that story is that you might come out of this morning, because there's some hard stuff in here, you might come out of this going, what? Like, is, is that, 
That, like, that, is that really the way that the story starts? Because that's not the way that I would have anticipated this story going. Like, is this a good story or is it a bad story? It's a great story. Guys, this story is filled with references and points to Jesus, which is why we're going to Ruth, or we're going to Easter, spoiler alert, okay? It's filled with super duper good stuff, but it starts like to set the stage in kind of this hardship type of way. And so I invite you, we're going to jump in uh, chapter one, verse one. Here's where we start. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to soak excuse me, sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Okay, so um, not a lot of detail in this first verse, right? Um, This is the author's way, I think, of kind of creating these big, sweeping, kind of general ideas, and they're designed to kind of help us to see the biggest picture of what's going on. And he's going to narrow that down, but it starts with this really big picture stuff, okay? Uh, and, and the first setting that he gives us is as this clue as to when, right? And it says, in the days or in the time of the judges, okay? So if you remember back into the Old Testament, or at least the way that it's recorded in our Bible, right? It's Joshua, judges, and then what? Ruth, right? So we did this last week a little bit, but just to kind of small recap, right? We're going to start down here in, in Egypt, right? So like many years before, right, there's this group of people, the Jewish people, and they are flourishing, right? But then the new king, new pharaoh, and he puts them into slavery. And this becomes the primary motif from the New Testament to talk about our slavery to sin and death. And yet God, and this is, you know, I'm intentional, you know, with the way I'm used to choosing pink here, just kind of representing this extravagant love of God, right? What does he do? He enters into the story and he brings his people out, right? And through a series of different things, eventually he brings them to this place called the promised land. And the promised land is unique in that it really is, is totally antithesis of the life and the, and the lifestyle of the desert, right? It's the dry, it's the barren, but this is a place of flourishing. It's, it's overflowing with milk and, and honey, right? These symbols for this life of flourishment, right? And so that's kind of pre, but then Joshua, right, is where that, that story where as, as Joshua leads the people into the land, he has to bring conquest. So they go in and they bring conquest to the land, right? I did it backwards. I just realized that. I did that the other day. You know what? Now it's, it's for you and for me, okay? And what happens is that by the end of the book, what he's done is not just as he brought conquest, he's divided the entire promised land into the different spaces for the clans. And so you look at this and you go, okay, so story over? Is this utopia? Have they experienced, they, they, they now have the inheritance that they've been waiting for for so long, right? Is this where life just, the bliss enters into the story? We don't know. No, what happens? Why? Why is this the case? Because without a king, right, in the absence of a ruler, in an absence of somebody who is calling them to a different standard, it says that everybody did what was right. And you're like, wow, that sounds good. Way to go. No, 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 no. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's what you could sum up the entire book of Judges. Right? And so really, in the absence of a king, what happens is that every single individual is their own king. 
And I will do and live life however I want to. And what does it do? Is that it puts like the whole people into the spiritual darkness, the spiritual chaotic, like messy type of a swirl. And this is the context of the story. Now we don't know where the book of Ruth like fits into the judge's category. But what we know is that he intentionally, as an author, let us know that this is how it's connected to the broader story, right? This is the broader story. And eventually then what they do though, and what we'll find is that they actually, even when they're in the promised land, they're gonna take this journey and they're gonna move out of the promised land into this place called Moab. And it starts with these big sweeping things, though, because you've got this unidentified man, right? So it's the days of the judges. There's this famine in the land, right? And then there's this unidentified man. He goes into the country. It's his, him and his wife and his two sons. And here's what I think is happening, right? Is that in this, just in this first verse, is that the author is helping us see these big national sweeping things. And what he's going to do is he's going to bring it into the closeness of a family. From national to family. It's like watching the national news, like you watch the national news and you see all these big sweeping things that are kind of dominating themes or stories from around, from around the United States or even, you know, globally, whatever it is. But as soon as it becomes about a solo in particular family, all of a sudden you go, wow, that, that resonates differently with me. It's a different type of a story. It's not just some big idea. It's something, there's something that's happening in a family, um, I, you know, just in a, in a moment of vulnerability, I'll share this with you. I don't, you know, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because I don't want you to, to feel bad. Um, but for me, I tend to be a sarcastic driver. I find that I find myself to be a non, very non-judgmental person um, in life until I get in my car. And it's, it's a trait that I do not like. I really don't. And I tend to be sarcastic. In fact, I was driving the other day and Eden, my four-year-old daughter from the back goes, Dada, I wish everyone was as good a driver as you. <laughs> and two things went through my heart. The first one was, absolutely right, sweetheart. <laughs> and the second thing was, ouch, like that's hard. That's painful. Like this is the example and the model that I just set for my daughter, right? But here's the thing for me is that and I can be sarcastic and judgmental, but as soon as I drive by that person, I tend, I try not to give the evil eye, okay? I try not to. I try not to do that stink eye, but I do. I want to see who that person is. And so I do this, and then all of a sudden I go, oh, it's a real person. <sighs> I knew it was a real person, but now that I see who it is, it's like all of that sarcasm and judgment just falls to the floor, and I confess. I'm like, man, that was so wrong. That was so wrong. You see, the same thing is like when, I, when you think about these big general things, as soon as you see a face, as soon as you find out about the family or whatever it is, it makes it personal. And it changes how you identify with the story. 
And so what he's doing here is he's moving from general to a family. He's going to help you identify with this family. And, and their unique story is that they're on a, like this journey, right? They're going to sojourn their way, right, from the promised land into Moab. Now, I just, just pause for a second and just kind of like just sprinkle in this little application because when people come from another country to our country, okay, in our culture, that's easy for us. It's easy for you and I because you and I would say, hey, we're glad that you're here, but you need to adopt our culture. I want you to acknowledge the difficulty of what that family is doing. Because put yourself in their shoes and you flip-flop and you leave and you go to another culture, all of a sudden you realize you don't know the language. You don't know family that's moving to the Fargo Morganhead area, they're going to spend six months and take them to the grocery store. And I'm like, wow, way to go. Like, that's awesome that you identify how hard of a struggle that would be. And so we identify with this, with this family who's moving into this other place into Moab. And what's interesting in this, right, is that they're leaving because of a famine, right? And so when you think about this, um, Bethlehem, which is the town that they're from, which by the way, another shocker, right, another forward pointer to Jesus, right? It's all about Bethlehem, right? And there's, they come from Bethlehem, but the word in Hebrew means what? House of bread. Why are they leaving? There's no bread. Do you see the irony in this? It's like, it's like they're in the promised land, and yet things are still not right. Things are still not the way that they're supposed to be. And so there's this move from the promised land just however many years after they got there because there's a famine. Now, the reality is, is that we have absolutely no idea why they chose to left other than the famine. You see, you might look at this and go, man, um, so maybe it's super practical. And maybe if you're like a practical family, you go, this is us. Maybe you go, man, we're in a famine. There's drought. We don't have food. We don't have water. Hey, look, Moab's got water. Let's go there. Maybe that's why. Maybe God shows up and says, hey, I want you guys to go. Maybe it's a consequence of sin. Maybe they're like, hey, we're going to do what's right in our own eyes. I don't know. The text doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us which one of those, if any of those things. I do know this, is that sin and disobedience, those two things, God holds a pretty high standard on. So when those are an issue, he tends to talk about them. He does not mention sin or disobedience anywhere in these first five verses. Here's what I think. I think that whatever the reason, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is that God is using a famine to sovereignly and providentially push a family into Moab because that's where he wants them. And he's going to use them in a powerful, powerful way moving forward. So here's this deal, right? So you got this kind of all these big general sweeping things. We get a little bit more personal. We get a glimpse of the family here in verse 2. It says, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, they went into the country of Moab and remained there. When you read that, how much new 
information in there is there than the first verse? Not a ton, right? Not a ton, but the one thing that is different is it actually gives you a picture of the family. It tells you their names, doesn't it? And so when you think about this, you go, okay, so like act one, scene one is unfolding, and, and initially, right, as these characters come on the stage, it's unidentified man, unidentified woman, unidentified son, unidentified son. The next thing that they do to develop the story and the plot line is that they share or tell you who they are. So you as a reader are going, okay, yeah, so it's not just some random guy, it's actually Elimelech. And it's his wife, Naomi. And it's their son, Malin, and it's their son, Jillian. You go, okay, like all of a sudden, like this allows me to connect to people on a much more personal level, right? But this is, there's something that's key here that the author, I think, is doing for us as modern day readers that we oftentimes miss. Because in our culture, we have this tendency to pick names that we like, not names that have this tons of, of meaning around them. In Hebrew, these, each of these names have meaning. Now, um, Naomi is the only name that the author is going to make a play on, and that will happen next week, in next week's passage, okay? But I do think that this is significant because the word Elimelech, the name Elimelech means God my king. And you go, wow, that tells me something about his character, doesn't it? You go, okay, so, like, so his whole identity as a person is wrapped up in who? In Yahweh, the creator God, who is his ultimate authority and ruler and king in his life. So even interestingly, in the absence of a king in this area, who does he identify as king? God. Pretty cool, right? But here's what's interesting. You go to the next person. You go to Naomi. What does Naomi mean? Naomi means sweet and pleasant. And you're like, wow. You know, you look at this as a couple, and you go, man, I want to spend some time with Elimelech. I want to spend some time with Naomi. They are like together, man, they are, they are the power couple. You know, like they're awesome people that we should spend time with. Okay, so tell me, tell me about their kids. What about their kids? What does Malin mean? Malin means sick. What does Chilean mean? It means frail or mortality. You see, all of a sudden, what happens in this, even though we would glance right over it, what the author, I think, is doing is setting up a glimpse for us as readers to hold in tension the goodness and beauty of life and the hardship and the struggle of life. And you see, what I think, when I, when I look at Ruth, guys, this is a book that's about life. Like, this is like, like day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, year after year. This is a book about life. This is down to earth because it's going to deal with very real things that you and I deal with on a regular basis. And so there's going to be a lot of application and hope in this book for us to look to and go, wow, like that, like that's me. I find myself in this story. And so again, so what I think what he's doing is he's setting up, right? He's setting up this national level, this, these big things. He goes to the family, and all of a sudden, he's going to bring it down to this very personal level as we begin to identify with the struggles that we experience in life, right? These deep, intense struggles. Look at verse Three, this is where struggle enters in. We go from the sojourn, so in the midst of the journey, all of a sudden the struggle happens. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And you go, yeah, it's not, not the way I expected the story to start. It's not the way I expected this 
to go. You know, I, for me, I don't know if you guys do this, if you've ever been to a funeral more recently, but um, go to a funeral, and oftentimes what they'll do is they'll, they'll put slides, like pictures, of like, like the life. It's kind of like this birth to death type of a thing, and you get to, like, you can sit there, and you can watch, and like, every time I do, I'm mesmerized by the stories, because you see these, these, these moments that have been captured in images about what life was like before their death, right? And so it's like, you go all the way back, and you go, oh, that's like, maybe that's a significant relationship, a husband, or a wife, or a son, or a daughter, or a cousin. Oh, that's a Bible study. That's them at church. This is them in their neighborhood serving at their local, you know, Ellen Hopkins, or whatever it is, and you capture all these pictures, and you're like, you're like, wow, like, their life was so great. And, and the reality is, is that you look at this, and you go, man, like, the author doesn't give us any details about Elimelech and Naomi's marriage. doesn't give us any of that, right? And so, but yeah, we, we long to see kind of those things, you know, beforehand. And so for you and I, that's like we are made in the image of God, right? God existed and has existed for all of eternity inside of relationship with himself. So we're designed for community. As such, when struggles and hardship and joys and hopes enter into life, what we naturally do as humans is to gravitate to other people, and what we do is we cling to those people, and some of them are really good friends, some of them become like a spouse, but these are the people that we do and share life with in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the hardship, in the midst of all of that. And when death enters into the story, it rips that relationship away, and you're left with what feels like emptiness and abandonment. You see, Naomi has just lost the single most important person in her life. And you, and you think about this story, right? It's not, like there is a very true reality that she was living in a patriarchal society. But more than that, she lost the husband that she loved. And it's hard. And it is just incredibly, incredibly painful. And we long to know all of the joys and all of the details of the relationship, but we're not given that. And then the author continues, he finishes the sentence with, and she was left with her two sons. And it's like the author like, like intentionally creates this, this emotional pause for you and I as readers just to, just to let that sit and to soak. And we, and we think, gosh, where in my life have I experienced abandonment? Where have I experienced emptiness in my life? And again, so what I think the author is doing is he started in verse 1 with this national stuff. Verse 2, he brings it down to the family. Verse 3, he brings it down to the struggle where you and I as people can go, I can identify with her sorrow. I can identify with her struggle because I have struggle in my life like we all do. And as the story continues, again, very little detail. We know very, very little. But verse 4, it says, And these, these, referring to her sons, took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And so, like, hope is re-injected back into the story, right? And so, in the midst of the loss of her husband, now her sons take wives, and you expect for this family to be rebuilt. And it says that they lived there about 
10 years. And you go, man, like this is, this is what God is, like he's, he set this up. And you go, how is God going to redeem this story? And yet you look in verse 5, and this is how it finishes. And both Malin and Chilean died. And it feels, as you read the story, that there's loss upon loss. There's actually a third layer of loss because if they've been married for 10 years, how do you expect this family to continue? If there's kids, there's no kids in this story. There's no husband, there's no son, and there's no grandkid. Loss upon loss upon loss. And I don't think that the author is being insensitive. I think what he's doing is that he's, he's stringing all these things together apart from the details to help us understand that he's setting the stage for the rest of the story to continue. Because when you read this, you go, wow, this is just awfully hard. How can God ever redeem this? How can God ever work in this type of a story? Because the verse 5 ends with a woman with no hope, no husband, no sons, no grandkids, no protection, no income, no land, because they're in Moab. Collectively, her and her daughters-in-law bring nothing to the table. And you go, man, this is not the way that I thought the story was supposed to start. What? Like, is this the way that it's supposed to be? And it makes me think, even more recently in our church, I think about Sarah Hansen, who's our, our director of children's ministry. You know, like she was dating this wonderful guy named Chris. And Christopher loved Jesus so much, right? And we were watching this dating story unfold from afar and, you know, and waiting for the moment in which she would get engaged. And, and then she did, and we celebrated, and it was incredible. It was amazing. And then the wedding came, and we all cheered. Raha, this is a great story. Ten weeks they were married. And then Christopher died. They go, that's not the way the story was supposed to go. That's not what I expected, 10 weeks? In fact, you're actually going to hear from Sarah at the very end of this series before Easter about how God has been bringing redemption into her story. And it's going to be so good, but life is filled with the struggle. I think about Ann Dahl and her story and how she went from healthy to sick really fast and how that whole thing was filled with all these turning points and we're hoping and hoping and hoping and all of a sudden we go, man, like that's not the way that God had it. And we go, this is not the way I expected the story to go. And there are people in this room who are fighting against what feels like the inevitability of that. There are people fighting against the possibility even of death. And we go, man, like nothing more than death in any person's life will ever cause us to, to see the desperation of the human soul more. And it's hard. In fact, I was, I was listening to a radio the other day. And so I was just thinking through this, and I was listening to radio, and a song came on, and it's talking about all these things that you can do with the people that you love, and all of a sudden it goes, until you can't. And I was like, gosh, like, God, like if I knew, if I only knew how many days I had to be with certain people, especially the people I love most in life, like how would that change how I interact with them? 
Because I guarantee you it would, right? And so for us, I go in the midst of the struggle, go, man, like, like we as human beings, we are, we are strong. We have muscle and strength that, that is unmatched by many creatures, and yet we are incredibly fragile. That's who we are as humans. And none of us are outside the fact that, that grief can re-enter back into the story at any single given moment, right? Like you could be walking down the road or rocking, like walking down like the sidewalk and smell a hot dog. I don't know, like for whatever reason, you go, that takes me back to this moment. And grief resurges into my life. And I'm back in that moment. And it's this reminder that, man, that life is not the way that I thought that it would be. Because life is filled with struggle. And this might be oversimplistic and maybe a little reductionistic, but I want to say this. Every single person has struggles. And I think this is incredibly, incredibly important for the church to recognize because healthy Christians learn how to struggle. And healthy churches learn how to struggle. Because here's the good news. Despite the fact that every single person in here is in some variety, in some way, shape, or form of their own struggle, whether it's the loss of something, like the loss of a person or the loss of something else, everybody has it. Like when I think about, when I think about my story, I don't know, some of you guys may know that I'm adopted. And, and, uh, and so for me, um, for many, many years as I was growing up, I was raised in a Christian family. I thought, man, this is so good. My upbringing is great. I've got a great family. And yet, in the midst of that time, like I started wrestling with some of my identity issues. And people came to me, and at one point they said, you know, they'd say like, Seth, oh man, you look so much like your mom or, or so much like your dad. And I wanted to be like, man, who are you looking at? Because I look in the mirror every day. And it's hard for me. Like, I'm, I, I'm wrestling with this, and I don't think you understand. So part of what was happening in my life as I started growing up and walking in my faith, I created this expectation, this dream of mine, that the way that God would redeem my story is that he would give me a baby that looked just like me. Just like me. And so then fast forward the story, Nikki and I, you know, we get married, we start having these conversations about how our family is going to grow, right? And then we find out that life, like, is going to be harder than we expected. Like, this is going to be a struggle for us. And so we, we talk to specialists and we, we find that infertility becomes the stamp, you know, that kind of just imprints on us in our story what our family is going to look like or not look like. And so we started fighting that story. We went to specialists, and, and, and we did many, many times. And I remember walking into the specialist one day, and he looked at us with this big smile, and he goes, how would you guys feel about twins? And I was like, oh, man, I'm in. Like, yeah, like, I know. You know what? Nikki may not want to give birth twice, but I'm all in, you know? Like, I know that's harder for her, but like, yeah, twins, exceptional, great. Went home, got really excited. We came back however many weeks later, and the doctor looked at us and said, I'm sorry, didn't work. Didn't work. I crawled into that couch for three days and cried, didn't move for three days until all my tears were gone. Because my dream and my expectation was lost. And it was the death of something inside of me in that moment 
You see, there's physical death and there are other forms of death that we all wrestle with. We all have struggles, right? But here's the good news. We can struggle well, right? Yeah, I want you just to think as we finish with this, just go like, the, think, rethink through this story for a second because verse five ends with this idea that this woman has no hope, no husband. She has no sons. She has no grandkids. She has no income. She has no lineage. She has nothing collectively to bring to the table. She has nothing. Does that remind you of another story? How about the gospel? It reminds us of what we bring, or rather don't bring, to the table. Because it's all about salvation. This is God's story. So if we went from the sojourn to the struggle, and then we come to the salvation, what we realize is that there's this word called redemption, which is like salvation in the Old Testament. And it's like God looking at the brokenness of the world. He looks in and he goes, man, this is a mess, but I can buy it back for my purposes and I can turn this thing into the most beautiful story you've ever seen. And you go, why, God? Why would you do that? There's this word in Ruth. It's the word hesed. Hesed means unceasing kindness. Or steadfast love. So it's like, you think about the character and the nature of God. He goes, man, my disposition is to work for the good of those whom I love. And it is unceasing. And it will never stop. I will keep pursuing. My kindness is upon you. Over and over and over, I can redeem this story. And you look at this story and you go, gosh, God, how are you going to redeem this story? Well, there's two ways that he does, because we got to remember that this story is a little big story. So there's a little story, and there's a big story happening at the same time. And God brings redemption through and in both. The little story is the spoiler alert, what started with emptiness for Naomi, where she had no family left and no kids in her arm. Spoiler alert, the end of the story, she ends with a baby in her arms. And God brings redemption her story. Now, we don't know how God always chooses to redeem stories. In her story, that's how it worked. In my story, that's not how it worked. In our story, you just know that for us, you know, again, like for me, like I always thought that God would redeem my story by giving me a kid that looked like me. And that's not the way he did it. And it was so hard and filled with massive amounts of struggle. But then when Eden entered into my life, who, by the way, looks everything but like me, I thought, this is the coolest thing ever. This is better than I ever could have imagined. And there was redemption in my story. Redemption in our story. You see, for there, in order for there to be salvation, there needs to be a savior. In order for there to be redemption and a buying back, there has to be a cost. And that's where the big story enters in, because what we find is that Ruth, as much as it's a story about God working in the small things and the little things, it's about him pointing us to Jesus. Okay, let me finish with this. As we come back to this story, right, we know that the story starts in Genesis and whatnot, but as we think about, you know, kind of this whole Joshua thing, right, right before Ruth, you've got Joshua, then you've got, you know, then you've got the judges, 
right? And then right over here, you know, right after that, you have, excuse me, the story of Ruth, right? You've got the story of Ruth. So even though this play takes place chronologically, and you're like, okay, why does this even matter? Let me just trust me, it matters, okay? So in the English Bible, when you read and you see this, it goes, Joshua judges Ruth. In the Hebrew canon, it's way somewhere else, and what we find is that Ruth actually wasn't written for some time. And so here's how this story would continue. If this were to keep going and keep going, right, what happens after Ruth is that you have the kingdom. You have Saul, then David, then you have Solomon, and then Rehoboam, right? And then all of that falls kind of, and you got a north, and then you've got a south. So you've got those kingdoms. But then what happens is that because of sin in, in everywhere, right, there's this exile, what we find is that Ruth was written somewhere over here. Why is it that Ruth would be written here but take place here? Here's why. Judges. What's the one thing that starts in Judges that we learned about? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That started way back at the creation, continues to here. That's where it's named. This is a core problem of humanity. No matter how many kings, no matter what we try to do, no matter the punishment on us, we don't repent, right? And it brings us all the way to this point where we look, look to the past and say, at no point has this core problem of humanity ever been solved. It continues to persist. And it takes us all the way to here. And so by looking at it in the exile, it's to a group of people who read this story, who are in full acknowledgement that this accentuates the need for a savior. It accentuates a need for redemption, which points us to Jesus. All of those pieces flow right together. It's a little big story. I want to finish with uh, just this application. You know, we start with this, right? Everyone has struggles. We know this. But the, here's the reality is that few people ever learn to struggle well. This is something that I learned from my mentor many, many years ago. Guys, and I will continue to chip at this rock over and over and over. And because I said this earlier, is that I think that healthy Christians learn how to struggle well. And that healthy churches learn how to struggle well. Everyone has struggles very few people know how to struggle well. To struggle well is this. It's to point oneself or any other person at any given time to Jesus. I give you two things out of that just to make this really applicable. The first thing is this. Listen and share. Guys, vulnerability is not a weakness. It's a strength. Learn how to listen to other people's stories. Really hear what's going on in their life. And don't allow them to pretend that... Life is peachy because everyone has struggles. And I want you to take boldness and share yourself. Listen and share. The second thing is this, is as you approach and you come into contact with other people's struggles, first thing, be compassionate. Don't be judgmental. Don't be black and white. Don't be Seth in the car. Be the, be the people who love, extend grace, but at the same time, they, you point people to Christ-likeness. You see, it's not a pat on the back. Hey, man, I'm sorry that you're struggling. It's a man, I'm there too, but here's the deal. We need to become like Christ. Let's do that together. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, Lord, as we finish this morning, we've just looked at five verses in Ruth, and, and the reality is, is that for many of us in this room, we go, man, like, this is not the way that I thought the story was going to start. Like, this is the kickoff to the series, and yet what we've been faced with is, is this idea of death and struggle and hardship. But Lord, I know that in each of us, there's this tension in our life when it comes down to daily living, that for each of us, we hold the goodness and beauty of life. At the same time, we hold in tension the hardship and the struggle. And so, Father, this morning, Lord, I pray that you would be moving inside of us an acknowledgement and a wrestling with, with your grace and your mercy and your unceasing kindness that is in constant pursuit of you and me, that we would see the depth of our need in our life for a Savior, and may we overflow to others the depth of which we've been given. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you for the opportunity to worship and praise you. In your name we pray, amen.